0: Now this morning we're, we're in chapter six and last time we met, we, we kind of set the stage for this miracle, this, this feeding of the five thousand. It's the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospel accounts, the only one right here, this feeding of the five thousand. And as we, we talked about last week or well, to last time, I'll probably keep saying last week, but last time, a lot of life, a lot of Jesus's life and the life that's recorded in the Gospels has happened in between John 5, 47, which is the last verse in John chapter 5, and John 6, 1. We said this last week, but Matthew chapter 4 through 14 has happened, all in between those two verses. Mark chapters 1 through 6 has happened, all between those two verses. Luke chapter 5 through 9 has happened, all between those two verses. But remember, John's purpose, John's purpose is not, the other gospel writer's purpose. John has a very specific purpose. He hand selected seven signs because he wants to persuade and convince his readers and by implication us that we can trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. That's why he wrote the book. So he's not interested in giving a blow by blow detailed account. In fact, he goes to the end of his book and he says, look, man, if I recorded everything Jesus did, right, that ain't no book. Going to be able to contain all that, right? It's, so he's he's strategically picking things, and so this is why he jumps ahead. But this miracle that he picks is key because it leads into a discourse that we're going to have here at the end of chapter six. It's known as the Bread of Life discourse, and so the miracle, although exciting and and cool and neat, and we we get jazzed up, and we should, it's really just the opening act for the main event. The main event's the teaching. That's what we're going to get to at the end of chapter 6. Now, last time, you'll see the title of the message today is the Discipleship Practicum with Jesus. Last time, we called it uh, the Classroom of Discipleship or Discipleship Classroom. Recently we said that, look at verse 6 for me real quick. Chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus, it says, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And so he... He is teaching them something here. He is testing them. He's quizzing them. He's giving them information. He's challenging them to think. And this is what you do in the classroom. And then after you teach in the classroom, what do you typically do? You bring them into a practicum. How many people have ever said, well, I studied that in college, but I didn't really understand that until I got into my job. Then it made a lot more sense. Or I understood that in, in the, in the textbook. But I didn't really understand it until I got my my fingers on it in the practicum. Jesus is going to do that with his disciples this week. He's been teaching them. Now he's going to bring them out of the classroom and into a practical exercise. Now, for context sake, they had just gotten back from a missionary journey. So it wasn't like he's been teaching them all this way. Now he's going to bring them into practicum. They've been going back and forth. But we're going to see it really practically work itself out here. And that's, what's so interesting is part of discipleship is not only teaching, but it's allowing people to do ministry with you. We often miss that sometimes. And this is why oftentimes when people think of discipleship, they think it's people showing up, sitting at the teacher's feet and taking notes. That's not discipleship. That can be an aspect of discipleship, but it's not discipleship in and of itself. There's something a little bit more. There's bringing people into ministry. Not your ministry necessarily, but the ministry that God has called them to. See, that's what's important. Good works, each of us designed uniquely by God to walk in good works. So he's gonna, he's gonna move here in this section today from the lab to the streets. He's gonna move from the classroom to reality. And I love it the way the Lord Jesus does it because he, you know, he, he basically holds their hand into the practicum. We're gonna see that Bear out this morning, and so in John chapter six verse ten, let's read verse ten. Then Jesus said, "Make the people sit down." Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. This word "make" that Jesus used here—it's a command. He—he's telling them, uh, "Have them sit down," basically. And he's involving them in the ministry. Notice how Jesus is about to do a miracle, but now he's involving the discipleship uh, or the disciples in his ministry. In fact, we're going to see that he involves them in a few ways. Um, first, in verse 10, they're going to organize the groups. They're going to make them sit down. Verse 11, we're going to see they are actually the ones that are passing out the food. And there's a unique word that's used in John's account that really gives us a, a great image of them sharing in this ministry. And then finally, Verses 12 through 13, we're going to see that they cleaned up after the meal. And so, as I said, there's only, there's certain things that you can learn. You know, I I remember years ago, uh, Carrie and I were moving. We were preparing to move cross country to Virginia. We lived there for a year. And, um, you know, I rented my first moving truck. You know, I was 24 years old. I felt like a big, I felt like a big man. You know, I got, I got a 26 foot moving truck. Now we had two cars we had to take and I'm like, man, how's that going to work? Cause I'm driving the moving truck. Carrie can't drive two cars. The guy said, well, well, we got a trailer. You can, you can put one of your cars up on the trailer. You just drag that behind the moving truck and then Carrie can drive the other car. I said, perfect. No problem. Have you ever driven with a trailer before? And I was like, no, but don't worry. I'm a stud. I got this together. You know, I got this all figured out. Right. Until I got to our apartment complex to actually move our furniture and I thought, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to be nice to the people helping me move. I'm going to back my truck in. You know where the story's going. So, uh, I'm going to back my truck in to the apartment so that we can kind of get access to the back quicker. And you know how that worked. And most embarrassing phone call, one of the most embarrassing, so the first one, that's a whole nother story, but I, We had to call my in-laws the night after Carrie and I's wedding to take us to the airport. That was a little awkward phone call to make. The second most embarrassing phone call was when we're working. I got my truck so jammed in the apartment complex, I had to call my father-in-law to come help me pull it out and straighten it up. Second most embarrassing call. Because when you turn left, the trailer goes right. (laughs) And when you turn right, the trailer goes left, right? I mean... You, you see this. So, so there are certain things you can watch other people do, but until you try to do it, oftentimes you don't realize what's all involved. So Jesus is going to get his disciples involved in the ministry now, right? They've been watching him do it. Like, yeah, it looks kind of easy. Just heal that guy, you know, and oh yeah, that looks kind of easy. Just did this. He just, now they're involved and they're going to start to see what's what's involved with this ministry. The other gospel accounts, they tell us that Per Jesus' further instructions, we picked this up in Mark. They had him, he had them sit sit down in orderly groups of fifteen hundred. Why why is that? Why is that insignificant? Well, I don't think they wanted a mad dash for the food, right? So this is just kind of an orderly way to distribute where people don't hurt each other. Remember, we had a lot of people here in this scenario. And so um, it's it's very similar to how we line up for a potluck line, right? We don't just say, hey, go go at it. Good luck. We're like, hey, start on the right, circle around. <laughs> you know, let's let the elderly go first, be patient, you know, kind of, there's some instructions. So he's, he's given this to them. So he's involving them in the ministry. He's making them sit down. Now, I don't want to make too much of this detail, but I will say this. There are times when you, you study the scriptures and, and, and it feels like the Lord makes a connection for you. And I just kind of want to share that this morning. I don't necessarily think this is what the, the point of the passage is, but it is interesting in verse 10, if you can, you can see that uh, insignificant detail He says there was much grass in the place. Now that's something you're just like, ah, whatever, right? We're just getting past it. We're getting to the miracle because that's really what's on our mind here. But I think it's, it's helpful. Uh, it's helpful in way, one way. And I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. In terms of the helpfulness, it gives us an idea of the location where the miracle took place. Remember he had, they had gotten a boat. They had gone toward Bethsaida, but they had gone to this, Non-developed and open area. We we see this topographical map there uh, around the Sea of Galilee. But up here near Bethsaida, you can see there's a little uh, open, uh, kind of flat piece of plain right there. It probably gives us an indication that that's where it took place. In this area, he says there was much grass. And so it kind of gives us a nice little, um, I guess, minor detail to give us an, an ability to, to hit the location. Where was this exactly? Probably in that plain right there since there was much grass as he describes it. But then I started, then it just kind of hit me. Let me just say the second reason. Um, it gives us this beautiful picture of the type of shepherd that Jesus Christ is. You know, Psalm 23, 2 tells us that Yahweh is our shepherd does what? He makes me to lie down in green pastures, Right? Psalm 23, 2a, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now, what has Jesus just done with the disciples? He says, make them sit down in the green, in the green grass. And you start to kind of look through Psalm 23. In fact, consider some other connections. Jesus had compassion on the multitude because they were like sheep having no shepherd. This is what He said in Mark 6. Psalm 23, 1a, The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus, when He came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. He began to be their shepherd in this moment. Another connection to Psalm 23, Jesus doesn't let them be in want. Isn't that what we learn in Psalm 23, that he's going to supply and provide abundantly for their needs? Psalm 23, 1b, I shall not want. Why shall I not want? Because Jesus is my shepherd. Because Yahweh is my shepherd. Notice what Jesus does in John 6. We'll kind of get there as we read through. But he took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish. Notice the phrases. As much as they wanted. So when they were filled, therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. You notice that? As much as they wanted. This is literally the first golden corral. Uh, you know, post message buffet that ever existed in the history of mankind right here. They got all that they wanted. And I, and I just love that image because Jesus is not so impotent that he say, Hey, take one fish at a time. And let's see if we got any left over, and maybe you can have two. He's just like, take what you want, fill up. See, he's a good shepherd. He, they shall not be in want we know that Jesus did not send them away to fend for themselves. Remember the, the disciples last time we met? They said, Jesus said, well, how are we going to feed all these people? And the says, look, we don't have enough money. D- just send them away. <laughs> Let them fend for themselves. And remember what Jesus said? No, you feed them. And like, well, we can't feed them. And that's when they actually entered into some wisdom. Because we can't feed them, Lord, but you can. We can't do it, Lord, but we know that you can. And you know what? Jesus was concerned about their well-being and safety. And this is why he keeps them around, just like the shepherd of Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Notice it doesn't say, I will fear no evil, because there is no evil. There's evil, no doubt about it. But I don't have to fear it, because the Lord is with me. The Lord is my shepherd. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Another small small, minor connection, Jesus performs this miracle near a large supply of water. We learn about the shepherd of Psalm 23, he leads me beside the still waters. And then we see in John 6, they're by the Sea of Galilee. And so again, minor insignific- insignificant detail. I took you on a rabbit trail with me as I was kind of studying through this week, this connection to Psalm 23, the shepherd that we worship and the goodness of that shepherd that we worship. Now, in uh verse 10, again, we get this incredible number of people. We brought this out last week, but here John mentions it. He says that there, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now, very specific statement. We talked about this last week, but John actually uses the word here for men, for a, a an adult male, okay, an adult male. It's not the generic term for mankind or people. So he's just numbering as he looks into the crowd He's guessing the number of adult men in the crowd. We know other people are there. How do we know that? Well, how did the miracle start? It started with a boy's lunch. There were other people there. And so as we've talked about this before, there were most likely women and children there. And if you gave it a conservative estimate, uh, you could could estimate roughly 15,000 people. Now, this is just averaging one woman, one child per man. Okay, so that there might be more. There might be less, but this is a conservative estimate. And just to put it in perspective, that's a picture of State Farm Arena where the Atlanta Hawks play their NBA basketball games. It holds it holds roughly 16,500 people for basketball games. So if you've ever been to a basketball game at State Farm Arena or any, any event there, uh, a concert, whatever, that's how many people conservatively would have been here for this miracle. This is how many people Jesus fed with a small boy's lunch. One of the things that I think I mean just just even as I'm studying this um this week have you ever noticed how the familiarity of something that Jesus did can oftentimes cause you to lose the awe and wonder of what he actually did and it's just and this is why I love pictures because you know 5000 is just a number on a page right 5000 is just a number on a page oh okay maybe 15000 just a number on a page but when you put this into perspective the, the, the incredible nature of this miracle that Jesus just performed, it, it should be mind-blowing. It should never stop being mind-blowing. Because the, the problem is, is when it becomes familiar, it stops becoming mind-blowing. Now, the solution is not to not make it familiar. <laughs> the solution is to just remember how incredible your Savior is and how incredibly resourceful He is and what He's capable of. And it just, uh, it ought to increase our awe for the Savior. Now, one of the things that's really cool about Jesus is he's not like your typical man, okay? That's the understatement of the year. He can multitask like most men. Do. No, I'm just, that's, sorry. Sorry, man, I'm coming after you a little bit. No, but he's, he's multitasking here, okay? We see the miracle, we think, oh, Jesus is doing a miracle. I think Jesus is multitasking. I think he's doing multiple things here, one of which... Is he is he is still training his disciples, and I want to bring this out as we go through this. Not only is he performing the miracle and in verifying and validating who he is and what he's teaching, but at the same time he's got his disciples in mind and he's bringing them along with them in ministry. Why do I say that? Well, um, I believe he's modeling this dependent ministry. Let's read verses eleven through thirteen. I want to come back to this picture. And Jesus took the loaves, verse eleven. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Now, I want to talk just briefly um, about how Jesus... Walk by faith. Now, we, we typically will use that term in our own life. And, and I don't know if anyone has ever used that term with you, walk by faith, and you've actually gotten angry with them because it seems so cliche. And you're like, what does that mean? What is, <laughs> like, how do you do that? What do you, what exactly does that mean, walking by faith? We use that term. It's not a, it's not a bad term. It's a, it's a great term. It's a biblical term. It's a biblical concept. But how do you walk by faith? I love this picture. Because I think it illustrates exactly what we're talking about. This lion is, and I'm assuming it's a female lion because she doesn't have the mane. She's she's not holding herself off the ground, right? We know that. We can look at that picture and tell. She's not holding herself off the ground. Something else besides her is keeping her off the ground. Her legs aren't doing it. It's this branch. This lion is relying upon the branch to keep it off of the ground. That's, that's faith. That's biblical faith, right? You're, you're persuaded that at some point that line was persuaded and convinced, and it relied on that branch to hold it off the ground. This is uh biblical faith. See, how was Jesus walking by faith? Well, we're going to look at that clearly, but look at verse 11. He took the loaves and when he had given thanks, other versions say, when he looked to heaven, Jesus is relying upon the Father and his resources for this miracle, just like we brought out in John chapter 5, right? Jesus is walking by faith. We are also to rely upon Jesus. We're going to see the disciples are relying upon Jesus and his resources to be involved in this miracle. They are walking by faith. They're relying on someone else, some someone else in this case, to uh, execute this miracle. And do you know, as you sit here today, Whether you realize it or not, that if you're, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are walking by faith as you sit there today. You're either walking by faith in the Lord Jesus and His resources, or you're walking by faith in yourself. You might even be trying to accomplish ministry by walking by faith in your own resources. Because you know what? I've done this before. I know what I'm doing. This isn't hard. I'm really gifted at talking. You know, it's it's like some people are like, well, I'm really gifted at talking. I should be a pastor. It doesn't quite correlate. You know, those kind of things don't quite correlate. Oh, I'm gifted at talking. I I must be able to encourage anybody. And then you find out like no one wants to be around you because you're not an encouragement, right? You just talk about yourself all the time or talk about, never mind. I won't, I won't get into that. All right. So the point is this. When we walk by faith, how do you do it? You're, you're mentally acknowledging. That what you're about to engage in will have no eternal value unless the Spirit of God does it in and through you. That's witnessing. That's teaching. That's studying your Bible. That's loving your wife. That's submitting to your husband. That's raising your children. That's going about your day as an employee. That's going about your day as an employer. That you could say, oh, I've done this before. I've worked this job for 20 years. I could do this job in my sleep. But also recognizing that nothing done without reliance upon the Lord has any eternal value. And when you get to that mindset, you'll begin walking by faith. Because you don't want to give away moments of your life. You want to just waste opportunities that the Lord has designed for you in terms of good works to walk in. And so you're going to take every moment of every day and you're going to say, you know what, Lord? I can't do anything acceptable to you in eternity unless you do it through me. I want to rely upon you today. It's that mental activity of saying, Lord, I can't, you can. Too many of us though, we think we can. <laughs> That's our problem. And even in moments where we think we can't, just give me 10 more moments and we think we can. It's insane. You know, if my car broke down today, I would immediately know I can't fix this because I can't fix Jack squad. <laughs> so I have no problem with that. But you give me some, call me up with a problem and I'll be Johnny on the spot with a solution in my own strength oftentimes. That'll make you think twice about calling me with your problem. <laughs> but you know, it's so it's so incredible how overconfident we are with all the proof. In the past of why I shouldn't be overconfident in myself, and I still go back to it. Do you hear me? I mean, it's like, it's like are you with me? Sorry, that's, in Liberia, that's what they say every time. They said, do you hear me? Are you hearing me? Do you listen? Are you listening? And they respond, but I, I caught you off guard. I didn't warn you about that one. So, you know, we're all like that. And I just want you, as we're reading the text, we're going to go through the text But I just want you mentally to see how Jesus is modeling this for them. I want you just to kind of observe that as we're going through. One of the things that uh, it's amazing is to consider the life of Jesus and his modeling not only how he lived his life, but how he brought others into his manner of living. See, he's multitasking. He's not just like we're blown away that he's doing the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. That's mind-blowing. But he's also doing other things while he's doing this. It's incredible to to think about our Lord. And one of the things that is so amazing, let me just, I want to bring this up a couple of times in a, a couple different verses. Jesus is fellowshipping his faith. If you've never heard that term before, um, I haven't either until I went to Philemon 6. And when you read Philemon 6, let's read it, and I'll tell you what most of us, it, it's just natural to think. Paul is praying for Philemon. He's recording a prayer. He says that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. How do you share your faith? Well, immediately immediately, I I thought of evangelism. I thought, "Oh, this is an evangelistic passage. He's, He's saying that when you share your faith, when you evangelize, it may become effective. Until I realized that the word sharing is not a verb, it's a noun. And, and off, most of the time in the, in the Bible, it's, it's called fellowship. It's the Greek word, if you know this Greek word, koinonia. It's the Greek word, koinonia. And so he says that the fellowship of your faith, fellowship means I'm bringing you into something in community with me. I'm bringing you into community or agreement or participation with me. And the question is, How do you fellowship your faith? Jesus is doing that in this passage, I believe. He's fellowshipping his faith. He's bringing his disciples into walking by faith. He's showing them what it looks like, and he's allowing them to participate in it. In fact, there's a key word in Philemon 6. How do you fellowship your faith? Notice that word by. By what? By the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. See, Again, too many of us are impressed, more impressed by ourselves than we are with Jesus Christ. This is how you fellowship your faith. In your mind, in your mind's eye, you get a little bit more impressed with Jesus Christ than yourself. You know, we, we do this sometimes in evangelism. Yeah, this person said this, and then I said this, and I really body slammed him with this, you know. And it's like, wow, you're pretty impressed with yourself, aren't you? That's that's not fellowshipping our faith. Fellowshipping our faith is, and then the Lord gave me this to say, and the Lord did this. I didn't know what I was going to say, and then somehow the Lord reminded me of this verse. See, we're fellowshipping our faith. We're acknowledging every good thing which is in us in Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus is modeling this here. In fact, I believe He's modeling what we're going to we'll, we'll call here in a little bit effective grace based dependent ministry. There's, ministry does not come in in one size and shape. In fact, the kind that's acceptable in eternity is going to be a grace-based, dependent level of ministry. Oftentimes, we get distracted by activity. We don't want to get distracted by activity. We want to do something that's worthwhile. Uh, Jesus is allowing his disciples to see his faith. You know, this is such a, uh, Hebrews 7, you know, the writer's writing to, uh, the Hebrew Christians about their church leaders. He says this, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Notice he says, follow their faith. I mean, he says, that, consider the outcome of their conduct as a motivation to follow their faith. How do you follow someone's faith if you're not seeing it? What a What a great encouragement to parents. You know, you can be walking with the Lord, and, and sometimes we, we can make a big show of this with our kids, and they kind of know when we're making a big show. But if you're walking by faith, and you're trusting the Lord, let your kids see it. Bring them into it with you. You know, nothing more effective than to say, you know what? I'm not feeling good. I'm stressed out. Let me get my eight-year-old to pray for me. Sometimes I, sometimes the, the, the failure that I am in life, I almost wonder if the Lord hears my 10-year-old's prayer more than, more than mine sometimes, <laughs> joking. But to just say, hey, pray for your dad. I'm not having a good day. Pray for your dad. I'm, I'm struggling here. Pray for me. I'm really stressed or I'm really anxious. And, and you, you have this way of bringing your children into your faith. You're allowing them to fellowship with you. Grandparents, do it with your grandkids. Do it with your coworkers. Do it with your friends. Do it with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's okay to be weak because when you are weak, then you are strong. I mean, it's like, it's this connection. And we we fight so hard not to be weak. Why? Because we want to stay weak? I don't get it. I don't get it. I, I'm preaching to myself here, by the way. So, But, you know, one of the things we're going to consider as we go through and as, as we've observed, just five principles coming through this passage regarding the concept of dependent ministry. Okay, going back again to verse 11, Jesus expressed his dependence upon divine resources in the view of others. In other words, he gave thanks. They saw that. They heard that. They realized that he was looking to heaven for the resources he needed to complete and to execute this miracle. And as Jesus stated in John 5, 19, he only does what the Father desires him to do to do. That was how he lived life. That was the food of his life, as he said in John chapter 4 as well. And so in this moment in time, what did the father desire? Well, clearly he desired that Jesus would do a miracle. He would feed these people physical food to meet their physical need. Why? To testify to his identity, to validate the message he was about to preach later in chapter 6. By the way, did the miracle work? It did. We're going to see their response. In fact, their response, like they're like jacked up. They can't hardly control themselves. They're so excited about what they witness here with this miracle. Now, second, we're going to see that Jesus involved his disciples in this miracle so they could participate in it. So often they watched him do things. Now they're going to do things with them. Jesus was depending on the Father. And then guess what? And we're going to see this through a word that John used. The disciples are now participating in the miracle by depending on Jesus. Jesus, depending on the father, modeling that the disciples are forced to depend on Jesus to participate in this miracle. How do we know that? We'll go back to the text. He says he distributed them to the disciples. Talking about the bread, and then he's going to go on and say uh, the fish, the loaves is what he distributed. Here's what's interesting about the word. He uses a, a Greek compound word. It's, uh, you can see it there, diodidami. It means to deliver through. It means especially from hand to hand in succession. What that means is this, and I don't know if you've ever seen Jesus movies where it almost, it almost looks like Jesus gives them a basket, uh, full of loaves. They go out and they start delivering the loaves and then they just never run out of the loaves. That's kind of what it looks, some of the movies look like. What this is saying is this. The succession um, line went from Jesus to the disciples and then to the people. First the bread, then the fish. It was an unlimited supply, as much as they wanted. And the idea is that Jesus was the one multiplying it, and they had to go tag up with him to get more. You see, it was this ongoing dependence upon Jesus Christ. When my basket got empty, I knew where I went back to. I didn't say, oh, you know, Let me do this hocus pocus and see if I can figure this out. No, I'm going back to the source that breaks the bread. And so he kept giving it to the disciples, and then they kept giving it to the people, and then they kept getting it from Jesus and giving it to the people, and this is what it looked like. It was a succession line that's brought out by this word. In fact, Mark 6.41 uses the imperfect tense. when When it talks about Jesus giving, the idea is he kept on giving them, The bread, he kept on giving them the fish. You know, Jesus, you know, that would have been a great, uh, to get behind the kitchen door on that one and see how he was doing that. But he was the son of God, this is how he's doing it. So he just keeps providing these materials for them to pass through. It's just an incredible way of seeing how ministry is supposed to work today. Jesus Christ ministering in and through us to others. That's how ministry is supposed to work today. We have a beautiful picture of it here just allowing these disciples to participate in this miracle. Now, when this progression happened, everyone was satisfied and completely full. It says that they got as much as they wanted. They were filled. And this is one of the things that we've got to understand. Hand-in-hand reliance upon Jesus Christ in ministry, this partnership with him and reliance on his resources, is the only thing that's going to meet the true needs of other people. Oftentimes, we get so focused on doing ministry, as if ministry is the end goal. It, ministry is not the end goal. Life in and through you to others is the goal. Ministry happens as a result of that. But it all starts with the right source. In fact, one of the things, let me, let me just say this, and, I'll, and let me be kind about this, but, but at the same time, be real with you. Have you ever had someone who, quote unquote, was serving you in ministry and they just annoyed the dog out of you? And I remember, and I'm not even going to mention her name, but I, I mean, not not that y'all would know her, anyways. But anyways, I remember there was somebody um, years ago uh, when I was I was out of town. They they told they literally called Carrie and said, "I would like to come over and minister to you while John is gone." And and it became this this incredibly burdensome <laughs> visit for Carrie. In fact, it would have been better if that this person would have just left her alone. This is years and years ago. And, 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 and this, this gal was so proud of herself for ministering to Carrie and she actually caused more problems for Carrie than it was. In fact, she, she left all her, you know, dirty whatever out and left her uh, to clean up stuff and all sorts of anyways. There's, there's a lot more details there. But the point is this. Oftentimes when we get wrapped around just doing ministry, we, we do it all for the wrong reasons. Let me just compare and contrast a couple of things with a grace-based ministry versus a legal-based ministry. You know, the primary emphasis in a legal-based uh, ministry is actions and activities. That's the primary thing. We're just trying to do something. We're trying to be active. It's all about our action. As long as I've got enough actions, I can check it off. Um, then I feel better about myself. Then I feel like I'm doing ministry. You know, two Bible studies is always better than one Bible study. Four, five Bible studies is always better than three Bible studies, right? We, we, we have this mindset that the, the more actions and activities that we do, the more spiritual that we're going to be. So if I, if I study six verses, if I, if I study seven, then I'm going to be like more spiritual that day. We, we have this action activity mindset. A grace based ministry, you're more concerned about your heart and motives behind the activities. You're more concerned about Who are you focused on? Who are you occupied with? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing something to be noticed by others? Am I doing something to be cheered by others? Which kind of leads into our next one. Different resources. A legal-based ministry, you're going to rely on your own resources, your own ingenuity, your own smartness, your own creativity, your own whatever. Grace-based ministry, you're relying on the Lord's resources. And then, you know, the guiding motive for a legal ministry ultimately is the applause and recognition of others. Now, don't raise your hand because you're probably just like me. Have you ever done a ministry that you then didn't get recognized for and then you got upset about the fact that you weren't recognized? Or let's not say ministry, say something nice for somebody. That's how oftentimes our, our motives are exposed. It is if you'll just take a look internally what's going on, the, 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 the poor attitude that you have about the fact that, well, how can we recognize One, two, three. He recognized three people, and then I was involved in that too. He didn't even say anything about me. Exposure. Exposure time. And and it's happened to me. Maybe it hasn't happened to you, but maybe it has. And you know that your guiding motive in the the grand scheme of things may have been impure. The reason you did what you did may not have been the best motivated reason. You know, when you're thinking a a grace-based dependent ministry, you got an audience of one on your mind. And it's not, that's not your pastor's seat. That's not your, your parent's seat. That's not your boss's seat. That's, that's a seat reserved solely for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Why do we do anything that we do? Hopefully it's for that man right there, seated in that chair, seated at the right hand of the Father, the one who died for you and rose again. Hopefully that's the only motivation you need to respond to the Word of God. And see, this is where ministry satisfaction will find its highest fulfillment. It's always from Jesus in and through his children to others. That is the conduit that needs to happen. This is the conduit. This is why in Galatians 2.20, it says, the life I live in the flesh, I no longer, well, I just messed that one up. Let's go to Galatians 2.20 since I can't remember anything this morning. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Here's what I was trying to say. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, a reliance upon the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is where ministry fulfillment is, from Jesus and in through his children to others. This is what we're seeing here modeled uh, in this scenario. Fourth, when the ministry of food was over, it was important to Jesus that the disciples gathered the leftovers so that not one thing would perish Or spoil. In fact, we see that there in the passage. He says, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Now, again, it's it's funny because depending on how you read that, you might think, oh, well, that kind of stinks for the disciples. They just got all the scraps. You know, you you picture like this chicken bone with like maybe one little piece of meat left hanging on it. Oh, the disciples got a scrap. No, I think, I think what he's saying here, these are, these are the pieces that have been broken. That haven't been consumed, okay? So they're they're getting the same food that everyone else is getting. Um, it's just leftovers. They, this everyone got what they needed, and there was leftovers. And Jesus couldn't have planned this more perfectly because how many are left? Exactly twelve baskets, exactly enough to meet the needs of the disciples. And it's just uh, it's just incredible to see that because although the disciples didn't even know it yet. The amount of leftovers would be an object lesson for them. Again, God always provides exactly what is needed. And God desires, I believe, to use tools to extract the highest and best use out of every tool of ministry. See, so he's not wasting anything. He's extracting the highest and best use out of even the, the, the food that he's broken apart. He's doing this as he moves forward. Fifth, when the ministry of the food was over, There was exactly enough left to feed and strengthen the disciples. Again, filled 12 baskets with these fragments. And this is what's amazing is when you think about ministry for the Lord Jesus, oftentimes people don't want to get fully involved in ministering to others because they're worried about what that might do to their own resources, what that might do to their own time. And there's a little bit of a fear. There's a fear factor of getting involved sometimes in ministry because like I have to protect myself. I have to do what's best for myself. What's what's incredible is in providing for others through his disciples, Jesus at the same time provided for his disciples. You see, they were tired too. They had just gotten back from a mission trip just prior to this. They wanted to get rid of the people because they didn't want to have to deal with more people. They're, you know, they were being honest. They it's like, send them away. We've had enough, you know, kind of deal. And Jesus, in meeting the needs of others through them, then met the needs of his own disciples by providing them. It kind of reminds me of Matthew 6, which is such a great verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then guess what? All these things will be added to you. It, we get so wrapped around the axle by all these things. We, we get so focused on all these things. And, and, and the Lord's just saying, you know what? Just walk with me. I'll take care of this stuff. I'll take care of all these things that, that tend to distract us from the main point. And this is why by the way eternal life is described as a fountain of water springing up in us in John 4:14 4, because as eternal life is working in us it spills out onto others. This is exactly what we're seeing in the lives of the disciples. They're simply responding to what Jesus has asked them to do. Now they've participated in this miracle which probably brought them great encouragement because they're thinking, you know, they saw what he started with, a little boy's lunch, right? A little Chick-fil-A kids meal basically. And he's splitting this up now, 15,000. As they, as they empty that basket, they go back to Jesus. They're like, there's no way he's got more. How, how does he have more? Okay. They go empty that. And it's like, there's no way he's got more. He's got more. I cannot, be- where is this stuff coming from? Just this amazing thing as they participate. And then at the end, there's 12 baskets remaining for them. Now that you've served others, sit and rest and refresh yourself. Get recharged yourself. It's just amazing how the Lord is even shepherding his disciples here. He's taking care of them throughout the process. So now that the miracle is done, let's look at the response. In fact, what's interesting is the crowd's response is only recorded in John. We don't have the crowd's response um, in the other accounts. And part of the reason, I think, is because Jesus is now going to spend time with this group, and he's going to teach them in John 6. So we kind of see their response. As I said earlier, their excitement Although somewhat misguided, it's it's palpable. It almost just jumps off the page because of Jesus' response here. So let's go to verse 14. Because what we're going to see is they identify him correctly. They they This has got to be the prophet that Moses spoke of. But then they had the wrong conclusion out of that identification. Let's read verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, uh in context, uh, you wouldn't notice this in the English, but John switches words here for men. Now he goes to the more generic men, uh, the anthropos, which now he's including not only the 5000 adult males, but all of the other people there, the women and the children that were also there. So this is what this is how they all responded. You could say then those people when all of them had seen the sign that Jesus did, they they were all in agreement here in terms of who Jesus is. He's the prophet who is to come into the world. They said that they saw, it uh, means that they, it wasn't, you know, what Jesus did, it wasn't like, he it was it wasn't sleight of hand. They saw that he started with this boy's lunch and that food just kept coming out of nowhere perceptibly. They witnessed this. They saw it. They perceived what was going on. Uh, The idea is that they could observe what had happened. It wasn't some trick performed in a back room. And you know what? They were convinced by the very things that were designed to convince them. This is what we've got to understand, that the the Messiah was uh, predicted that he would do these miracles, that he would do these signs. They were witnessed and verifiable, designed to verify and validate his identity. And this is exactly what it did. as we've said before in this study, there's nothing wrong with this response. You know, sometimes... You come to the Bible, you, you, you hear Bible teachers say, well, they, they just believe because of the signs. That was some kind of faulty faith. Faith. Well, you come to John 2.11. His disciples believed because of the signs. That's what John 2.11 says. Matthew 11.2 through five. When, when John the Baptist sent a messenger to Jesus said, should we believe on you? Is there someone coming after you? Jesus said, look at the signs. Matthew 11.2 through five. The whole purpose of John's gospel is to present signs in order to convince you and i to believe so there's nothing wrong with allowing the signs to convince us and persuade us that we can trust in jesus christ alone for salvation and eternal life nothing wrong with that at all in fact this is this is what these signs are designed to do but in this case what we're going to see is they identified him correctly he is the prophet that moses that um moses spoke of jesus is that prophet jesus is the messiah but what they did in uh, wrong is, is they started to try to get their desires fulfilled in this conclusion. And we're going to see that in verse 15. It's going to be illustrated for us there. So when they said he's truly the prophet that comes into the world, again, they've got an accurate identification of Jesus. They just try to carry it too far. We're going to see that. They're going to rush the timing in verse 15. Jesus isn't going to allow them to do that, as we'll see when we get there. We've talked about this in the study before, but the prophet, capital P, not just a prophet, but the prophet, they were looking for a singular prophet that Moses had described in Deuteronomy 18, 15, 18 through 19. You can, if you want to write that down, you look at them later. But let me just summarize what that passage said. It said that the this prophet, this unique prophet would be a Jew. He would be from their midst. He would be like Moses in the sense of closeness and nearness and then Direct communication with God to the people, and he would be unique in this sense, like Moses was unique, separated from all the other prophets that existed in the Old Testament. There was going to be this coming unique prophet. Now, in the Jewish mind, we've talked about this before when we were in chapter one. We'll talk about it again when we get to chapter seven. There was a lack of consensus on who this prophet would be. Some people thought, the prophet was um, going to be distinct from the Messiah. Somebody besides the Messiah. This is why, if you remember back in John 1, when we talked about this before, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they went through a, a list. They were asking John the Baptist, are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the Christ? No. They, they viewed the prophet as distinct from the Messiah. Some people, some Jews of the day, actually thought the prophet, the prophet, would be Jeremiah come back from the dead. Some, some Jews held that view Others held the view that the prophet would be the Messiah himself. Now, based on what they do in verse 15, this is what I believe this group thought. At least the consensus of this group thought Jesus was the prophet and the prophet was the same as the Messiah. I think we're going to see that. We'll bring that out in verse 15. By the way, they were right about that. They actually identified him correctly. As I said, Peter confirmed it later in his his sermon. Stephen confirmed it. In his sermon, they they identified this prophet that Moses had predicted as being the Messiah, and specifically being Jesus Christ. So they were right in their prediction. And one of the things that they connected, they clearly connected, was this prophet of Deuteronomy 18 with the Messiah. And again, we're going to see that in verse 15. One other reason there might be a potential connection, and this, just kind of hold on to this. You may, you're going to have to trust me for now. We'll bring this out as we go through the bread of life. Just, I know it's just kind of scary, huh? At least at least I'm not from the government saying, you got to trust me, right? I mean, that would be a lot more scary. But trust me for now, this will come out uh, as we get into the bread of life discourse. We'll bring this back out. But another reason for the potential connection to the prophet that Moses predicted, Moses provided manna for the children of Israel in the wilderness. And Jesus just fed a a multitude of people from a boy's lunch in a wilderness area. And I and I tell you, I think that's the connection. Look, go down to verse 30 and verse 31. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So there's this connection, I think, even in their mind. Wait a minute. He just fed all these people. Moses did that with manna. Maybe this is the prophet. So there's some some connections. There's some sparks going on in their thinking here. As, as they see. Now, let's close out this morning with verse 15. Because Jesus understands that although they have identified him correctly, they've got their own agenda on the table. And this is what he says. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. This word perceive means to come to know. It's typically translated know. But it's the idea that you gained knowledge. It's experiential knowledge, gained knowledge. And something in the eyes, something in the body language, something was palpable that Jesus was like, "Uh uh-oh, I better get out of here. They're fixing to grab me and make me do something that's outside of the timing of my father. So something he saw there, again, this excitement was was palpable. He understood this frenzied nature of the response of the crowd. And so the, the miracle had so amazed them, that now, I mean, just imagine that you're going to kidnap somebody and force them to be your king. That just, it doesn't seem to kind of, <laughs> doesn't seem to kind of go together, but this is what they're doing. And, and so it was outside of God's purpose and timing for him. In fact, this word, um, let's go to verse 15, um, that they were uh, about to come and take him by force. That's this word uh, we want to look at here. But this, uh at that moment, you know that phrase we're about to—it's it's a present indicative. At that very moment, Jesus is done with the miracle, and he kind of looks over, and he starts to see, you know, these eyes, and we're like, oh, this isn't looking real. Like at that very moment, they're about to take him by force. They're about to drag him off, and and try to make him king. In fact, this word "taken by force" it translates one Greek word. Um, harpazo, which is the same word used to describe the rapture in First Thessalonians 4.17. Those that, that enjoy studying about the rapture, First Thessalonians 4.17, it uses this same word. It's translated caught up there. Here it's, it's translated by this phrase, take him by force. The word itself means to seize upon, to snatch away. It denotes an open act of violence in contrast to cunning and secret stealing. It it, it described forcibly seizing someone and grabbing them against their will. Can you imagine, again, doing that to your king? (laughs) The one you wanted to make king, but this was in their mind. So this was contrary to God's will, contrary to God's timing. And so this crowd wanted to seize Jesus by force and make him their king. Implication, he would overthrow Rome. See, that was their motivation. They said, we want the kingdom now. We want these Romans out of here. We're going to make him come with it. Come with us. And it didn't match God's desire from him. Even all the way back in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, we see that God the Father is going to be the one who gives the kingdom to the Son, not people. People aren't going to force it to happen. People aren't going to bring it in. God the Father is going to give him the kingdom. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him, then to him was given, implied by God the Father, by the Ancient of Days, dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so this is why Jesus did not, I believe, going back to John 2, we talked about this there. This is it's another great example. This is why he didn't entrust himself to everyone who believed in him. Some had their own agenda. Some had their own motives. Some had their own will for his life. It wasn't in line with God's will, and so he wouldn't entrust himself to those kind of people. In fact, lest we think it was just this crowd. You remember when, when Jesus is kind of giving his disciples a heads up on what's about to happen when he walks into Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 16? He says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to raise again, and Peter says, Lord, stop talking. That's never going to happen to you and Jesus said to Peter get behind me Satan right he you know so here's a here's a disciple who was clearly saved who had his own agenda for the life of Jesus Christ and so uh, again this this group just expressed that they wanted they identified Jesus correctly but they wanted him for what they wanted him for he was a genie in a bottle to them let me just rub you a certain way get what i want and that was their attitude And finally, as we get to the end of verse 15, it kind of sets the stage for next week. He says this, he departed alone to a mountain by himself. And again, this is how the whole event started. And so what we're going to see, and we'll we'll tie this in next week, the other gospel accounts. Jesus actually, he he went up to get some alone time, but he also sent his disciples away in a boat without him to go over on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then he sent the multitudes away to be by himself. This is going to set the stage for the fifth miracle that John records, which we'll look at next week, which is Jesus walking on the water. So this happens right right after the feeding of the 5,000. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for this incredible story and just this incredible event in the life of the Lord Jesus. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know for sure that they have eternal life or doesn't know for sure where they would stand before you if they appeared before you in judgment. May they may they be encouraged. May they have heard enough to know that Jesus died for them so that they wouldn't have to face the death penalty and that he rose again. God, you have accepted his sacrifice on our behalf so that we don't have to face that penalty. Would you just encourage those who are on the fence that they, would, they could see and find in Jesus someone that they can entrust their eternal destiny to? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.